Welcome to Radically Personal, where we explore the behind-the-scenes stories of today's most beloved brands, how they started, what their mission is, and how they're building enduring relationships with customers and showing them how they have their best interests at heart. I'm Joseph Oncinelli, CEO of Gladly, where we're on a mission to help companies reinvent customer service and deliver on the promise of radically personal customer experiences. On today's episode, I am joined by Sean McGinnis, the president of Kuru Footwear. Sean and I chat about balancing personalization with efficiency, which have historically been thought of as competing goals. You're oriented for personalization or you're oriented for efficiency, and sometimes you can find both, and when you can, it's magical. We also talk about what it means to put people at the center and how leading with empathy is the golden rule of service. We learn from our customers what they need in order to make good decisions and use the data that is ever present inside the business to try to uh, treat customers the way we would want to be treated. You know, it's the old golden rule. And so we're constantly trying to evolve the way that we interact with customers. And finally, we learn how providing personalized service, along with a little help from technology, has helped Kuru provide world-class anticipatory experiences. If we could just all reach a little bit higher and find either the technology, the systems, the process, or the methodology that will help us better serve our customers uh, in a way that is uh, more anticipatory while also being more efficient. That's what every brand in the country should want. Um, And we stumbled into it with you all and it's been uh, an absolute blessing. So yeah, we love it. This is Radically Personal. Welcome. I am so excited to have Sean McGinnis of Kuru Footwear on today on Radically Personal. Welcome, Sean. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. That's good. Um, Why don't we start? uh, I always like to start the podcast with um, a little bit about the like the origin story of Kuru. You've you've like got this really interesting place in the market, and I just think that that story needs to be told. So I'd, I'd love to hear like the story of the company, how you got involved, all that goodness. Yeah. So uh, our CEO and founder is a gentleman named Brett Rasmussen. And Brett, from the time he was a teenager, uh, always knew that he wanted to start a shoe company. As part of our sort of company lore, we have pictures of of drawings, hand drawings and like lined paper from when he was in fifth or sixth grade. No way. Yeah. (laughs) I could go access them and show them to you. There's 15 feet from my office here. It's just incredible. Like, he, he was in grade school or middle school and some kid showed up with a new pair of kicks and they were the pump kind. And he was like, wait, do you see this? Like I can pump these things up and I can, I can jump higher. I can run faster. And Brett was like fascinated. He thought, oh my gosh, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, typical schoolboy behavior. And, and from that moment, just it was a dream seed that got planted along the way. And uh, Brett took a chance, you know, shortly after graduating college and um, decided to start a company. Uh, the whole dream so kind of from that perspective began when he entered a business plan contest at the University of Utah in 2006 and won the grand prize. So that $40,000 check is another part of our company lore. We've got it hanging on the wall, one of those ginormous checks, you know, with a foam backer board. It's like six feet long. It's huge. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the old presentation check, you know, and uh, he spent two years uh, doing patent research and talking to anyone and everyone that he could about how to get shoes made and where to get shoes yeah. made and learning from people along the way. And um, that's kind of the, the the beginning origin story. But the real interesting part, I think, of our, of our journey 
was when he went and did that patent research. He mm-hmm. really wanted to have, he knew that he wanted to have something that was um, defensible in terms of an intellectual property backstop in the marketplace. He wanted to do something that was different. And so he spent a lot of time understanding the biomechanics of the body and how all of our joints work when we walk and when we run and when we jump. And he invented this technology that we embed in every pair of shoes that we make. His initial thesis was he just wanted to build a better shoe. You know, the question really was at the beginning, if I buy a pair of running shoes, how come I also have to spend another $80 on a pair of uh, inserts to make them work for me, air quote, right? And so this was, the thesis was, why can't I just um, uh, take those shapes and and build them directly into the shoe? And that's kind of what the original theory was. He had no intention of building a shoe that helped solve foot pain. He just kind of stumbled into that. He started hearing from customers along the way that that technology removed some of the pain that they had been experiencing for years or sometimes decades. And so that's how Kuru Footwear was born. We were launched in 2008 and here we are 13 years later. That's awesome. Now, how did you get involved with the company? What's your background? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, my background is bizarre. <laughs> let's an, let's, let's under- start way back when. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was a small child, no, uh, <laughs> I, un- I graduated with a degree in acting, uh, went off to law school. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. wait, wait a second. Acting and then law school. I love the Oh yeah. So the acting story, uh, I had every intention of going to med school and was a typical, well, maybe atypical, but stupid 20 year old college male and uh, joined a fraternity and had uh, gotten good grades for my freshman and sophomore year in math and science. And junior year, there was an advanced organic chemistry class that started at eight in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And this 20-year-old kid was not getting out of bed for an 8 a.m. class until about (laughs) four weeks in. And I was so lost in advanced organic chemistry that I ran into the arms of the theater department because they happened to be doing a musical that I had done my senior year in high school. And I got heavily involved in theater at that point, and that they were able to get me out in four years. So that it was a rip, pull the ripcord moment of like, I need to get out of college. I don't want to be here for another five or six years, whatever it's going to take to actually do this thing right. So hence the hence the uh, undergrad degree in acting, and then I went off to law school. Um, um, got my degree at uh, University of San Diego School of Law. Graduated in 94, spent 10, 15 years in legal sales, selling to law firms across the country. And one of the things that we developed as a program uh, was marketing services and websites. And so I became very proficient in um, marketing for small B2B law firms, SEO in particular. So I uh, quickly became um, known for SEO inside the business and then as we were um, spinning out, I, we, we spun out a separate unit inside of larger Thomson Reuters um, that 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 uh, sold websites to law firms. And when they were looking for someone to lead the SEO department, they looked in-house and I took my first sort of corporate role and moved from sales management to and SEO management. And, yeah, and then, and then suddenly you, I was a marketer. And then how'd you end up at Kuru? Uh, yeah, from there, I've, I've about every three years or so, I took a promotion, move the comp- move the family around the country four or five times and was ultimately recruited out here into Salt Lake, um, led a big uh, marketing agency out here. And when I left that agency, I happened to meet our founder through a mutual friend and um, joined the firm in October 2019. So I've been here about two and a half years now. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. One of the things that you um, talk a lot about in terms of your approach to 
customer experience and service is this this phrase you've used called anticipatory, mm-hmm. which I think is such an interesting approach to thinking about service. Like, where did that come from, and and you know, how does that embody how you deliver the customer experience at Kuru? Yeah, that's that's at the vision of our CEO and founder, Brett. So Brett read a book back in the day that mentioned that phrase and he really locked onto it and just fell in love with it. And so it's been a focus of ours. It's actually part of our, uh, not our mission statement, but we run the business on a system called EOS. It's based on a book called Traction. EOS stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And one of the things that they mention in EOS is um, there's a vision side of the, the, the business and there's a traction side. And the vision yeah. side, we talk about what is the marketing strategy and our world-class anticipatory D2C customer experiences is one of the three uniques that we actually talk about uh, in that vision from a marketing perspective. So we try to, to, in a very empathetic way, learn from our customers what they need in order to make good decisions and use the data that is ever present inside the business to try to uh, treat customers the way we would want to be treated. You know, it's the old golden rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're constantly trying to evolve the way that we interact with customers. We meet them where they want to be met in terms of the various different channels. And obviously, Gladly's a huge part of that um, ecosystem for us. You know, when we made the change um, from our prior uh, partner into the ecosystem that, that y'all provide, uh, we became 30% more efficient in how we deal with customers. And so it's 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 a great example of when we think of anticipatory, mm-hmm. um, the fact that your system can guide a customer back to the same agent, the same Kuru Guru that we were working with two days ago. And no longer do we have to context switch and we don't have to go and, and spend five minutes reading up on the thread of what that customer history right. is. You know, when they reach out and they, they, they catch our one of our team members like Fern, Fern just goes, oh, I remember dealing with you. You know, I, I remember a call a couple <laughs> days ago. Now that that makes it a much better experience from our customer's point of view. And so uh, that's a huge part of how we kind of treat our customers every single day. That's awesome. That's, you used another word I also love when we founded Gladly, which, which is empathy. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of, you know, being empathetic for customers' situations. And, and I just think when, when you bring that um, and enable... I, and by the way, I love how you call the team gurus. I, I, I refer to all, all of the people who work on Gladly as heroes, but gurus is really I great. Um, I, I think that, you know, this idea that um, the way to create connection is through these empathetic conversations that happen where you actually can show that you have a customer's best interest at heart. And, and I think that you do that super, super well. Part of the thing that, you know, when when you have talked about anticipatory and also just learning, you shared a story with me once just a little bit about how part of the, the once you realized the, you know, what, what the job of Kuru is, you know, around, for, and that seemed to come from all of these conversations that you were having with customers around, around how you are helping people feel better. And... and and is that was that mostly from? I mean, and I, you know, I've purchased like you, you do a lot. You, it's interesting your purchase experience. You ask a lot of questions, actually, yeah. uh, which which I we which do. is very unique, which I like actually. And so, like, are those the kinds of insights that you drive then to turn them around to anticipate people more? Is that the idea? Yeah. So we believe very strongly in this um, 
it's a product-oriented framework called Jobs to be Done. Clayton Christensen here from Utah originated some of the, the frameworks behind that in partnership with some other thought leaders. And effectively, it that theory or that kind of methodology for doing product management asks product owners and product managers to think about the following question. What is the job that your customers are hiring your product to do for them, right? What is the specific frame of mind that they have? What are the competing alternatives that that they're considering you against, right? Sometimes it's not doing anything at all and suffering through the foot pain. Sometimes it might be surgery, could be as radical as that. It could be custom orthotics and a trip to the podiatrist. It could be Dr. Scholl's aftermarket inserts from a local grocery store, right? Like there's this whole range of considerations. And so we're constantly trying to evaluate and, and understand the jobs that each of our customers is hiring that specific pair of crews to do. So you can think about that in almost different levels, right? I mean, in the big picture, uh, I like to say that we are stylish shoes for flipping. That's kind of the category that we live in or that we inhabit. Um, and, and I like to think of that as like a Venn diagram, right? Typically stylish shoes create foot pain and typically foot pain shoes are very stylish. <laughs> and there's a sliver there that overlaps and it's us and maybe a couple of other players that, uh, you know, we pride ourselves in kind of providing the best of both worlds there. Um, but a layer down, the question is like, well, what are they using those specific shoes for? You know, what is the activity the that they're doing? Yeah. yeah. What's the job? I mean, we, we have certain people who will wear our hiking shoes to church with a suit. Like, you know, that raises the question, is there a better shoe we could develop for them for that specific job? And is that market big enough for us to go and, and kind of spend the time, the, the resources, et cetera, to go address that specific job? Or is that job one that, that most customers would say, you know what, I'm okay being uncomfortable for four hours because I know it's just that one thing. I need to go to a, a wedding and I'm willing to look incredible in my stiletto pumps and I'm willing to put up with some foot pain as a result of that. And I'll put my careers on when I get home and they'll help solve that problem. Right. Yeah. So it, we really like to think of it through that jobs framework and it's guiding our principles on a regular basis. So a lot of what you saw, even for example, we survey on the post-purchase checkout. Right. Right. Uh, the minute you make that purchase, we say, hey, well, why did you buy these specific shoes right. today? You know, or is it for a specific job that you do like a work job? Or uh, what are the kind of things that you plan on using them for? We gather that data. We provide that feedback back to our product team so they can understand why our customers are buying that specific pair of shoes. Yeah, I love it. The, the, the framework that you talk about, you know, is very famous for the, the job of the milkshake. And yeah. so folks would go out, like go out, go on YouTube and, and search for job to be done. And uh, uh, there's this whole thing of like the research they did of like, why are people at not eight o'clock in the morning going through a drive-through of a, of a fast food restaurant and buying a milkshake and people are like, well, that just seems kind of crazy. Like why are these people ordering milkshakes? And it turns out because they're very slow to drink on the commute home. And so I, I, we, we talk about that internally a lot. So I really love that. It's you, a great framework. Yeah, it is great. <laughs> and, 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 you know, just the, the milkshake. Oh, it's the best example yeah, ever. It's a, you know, it's, like, it's a head scratcher. Like, who has a milkshake for breakfast? It turns out a lot of folks, you know, just not us. Right. Um, you said something interesting about when we were talking about anticipatory service, and you said that you've become 30% more efficient by delivering more personalized service, which seems yeah. Like that would not happen. Like, like there's just, there's this, I think there's this natural belief that delivering personalized service takes more time. Yep. You've had the opposite. 
experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it almost, it, I, I have this personal point of view that in, in it, I originally developed it when I think about how we market our services, but I've learned in this role as, as, as president at Carew that it applies to almost every single department and you're hitting on another area where it does apply. And that's that you're either kind of oriented for growth or you're oriented for efficiency. And in, in this case, it's you're oriented for personalization or you're oriented for efficiency. And sometimes you can find both. And when you can, it's magical. Right. Like there is there is something incredible about what you just said, which is we're going to we're going to give you better service than ever and we're going to be more efficient at it. And that's like the brass ring, right? Like that's the holy grail. If we could just all reach a little bit higher and find either the technology, the systems, the process, or the methodology that will help us better serve our customers uh, in a way that is uh, more anticipatory while also being more efficient, that's what every brand in the country should want. Yeah. And totally we stumbled great. into it with you all, and it's been an absolute blessing. So, yeah, we I love have it. To, I, I'm going to admit something radically personal, which I don't think I've actually said publicly. When I started, when we started the company, I, I this was one of my biggest concerns, actually. I was like, I really believe that service should be more personal. I'm like, we're going to have to fight against the fact that it's not going to be as efficient and everyone so focuses sure. on efficiency. And literally within... Our first few go lives were like, whoa, whoa, customers are telling us that it's actually more efficient. And and it is this weird thing. You know, you think about, oh, we're going to deliver better service. So like efficiency is, you know, going to go sideways. And it turns out that it's actually just the opposite. When you do a better right. job of delivering personalized service, you're actually, yeah. it, it is more efficient, which is just awesome. Yeah. yeah how, does, how does that tie, when you think about delivering personalized service, how does that tie to how you think about self-service because oftentimes that's the other one that feels a little bit like they're competing ideas but i i don't think they are but i'd love your point of view on that yeah i think for us in particular we're constantly looking for ways that we can allow people to self-serve while giving them every opportunity to take choose a different pathway right and so especially in the pre-purchase experience, there are customers that just have questions and they feel more comfortable talking to a human. And that's right, fine. Right. <laughs> we, repl we replicate those, those same questions and answers in the Q&A section on the site. And we you know, are constantly thinking about ways that we can short circuit the, the question answer um, interaction inside of a chat window, for example, or inside of SMS now. Um, we want to meet our customers wherever they prefer to communicate. We don't want to force them into a box, right? And so it's it's always, I think, that healthy blend of providing, and, and really what the most important thing for us is to close the loop. And we're, we're constantly pulling on our guru's time to ask them for things that they're suddenly finding out from our customers, right? And so they're not directly responsible for updating information on the website, but we have to kind of cross pollinate and, and across these silos. It really goes back to, uh, you know, Brett talks about this an awful lot. When he first started the business, it was he and one other person that were doing product <laughs> development and answering the phone. I, I know those feelings. <laughs> it, was, it was really easy to take that customer feedback and push it into a different department because right. you only had two people doing right. all, everything, basically, right? right. Oh, you're, uh, this helps with plantar fasciitis. I'm going to go update the website today and talk about plantar right. fasciitis, you know? And so one of my jobs, and I think one of our jobs at Kuru is to make sure that we're breaking down those barriers 
because those silos inevitably grow up with the business. It's just impossible to keep them completely broken down. But my job is for every department to be as transparent as they can be with each other and make sure that information is getting shared. So we create those best in class experiences, regardless of the channel that the customer chooses. Yeah, I think that that this idea that any engagement is part of that ongoing conversation with a customer. And, you know, that that was just such a powerful thesis for why we started the company was just when we were getting started, we spent a year and we literally sat in all these contact centers and we were in these contact centers. And what we realized was that so much of why the experiences were not great was that the the, the teams didn't have the right tools. Right. to to be able to deliver on that like they didn't they didn't have the context and the context to your point is not just when they're engaged in a conversation with the customer but it's also what did they do in self-service what did they do on other channels like that has to be part of the, the whole picture and, and it's it's great when they come together let's talk a little bit about amazon <laughs> you don't sell on amazon And that's a very conscious decision. What's the thinking around that? And, and, you know, you know, they, 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 they're an interesting company competitor. (laughs) Uh, So I'd love that. How you, how you think about them? Yeah. I think as a consumer, uh, most people I know love buying stuff on Amazon, right? It's convenient. It's easy. It's cheap. As a brand, we want to make sure that we're in control of the customer experience every step of the way from the right. very first interaction you have with us to the very last. We want to make sure that we're in control of the destiny of the brand perception, I guess I would say. And that that includes controlling the customer data. It includes having the right and the ability to clearly communicate with every customer that we interact with and sell to. And and so we've made the conscious decision to sell only on our direct-to-consumer websites. The only place you can buy careers today that are new, you know, obviously you could buy a used pair off of eBay or on Amazon or on, you know, any one of a number of other different places that, uh, you know, people sell stuff, for the real, you know, wherever. Right, right. The, the other, uh, you know, there's money to be had there. We know we're leaving money on the table and we could probably be growing faster if we were to make the conscious decision to sell there. But we also don't sell through wholesale distribution. You can't find us in a Dick's Sporting Goods. Dick's is a great brand. It's a great company. I go there frequently for the things that I need. But for our brand, we've made that decision that we want to own every aspect of the customer relationship and interaction as, as, as wholly and completely as we can, at least for now. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we're talking about as a group is what's the next distribution vector or channel that we'll um, look at and owned and operated retail is another potential right. place where we can do everything I just mentioned and still service the customer and expand our capabilities. Right. Yeah. And so we're not quite there yet. It's still a, probably a few years away. But one of my big projects this quarter is to really d- make some big decisions about our go forward strategy with regard to that as a potential distribution channel. Yeah. I, you know, I always, um, you know, Amazon is a great company. I mean, you know, I, I've got my prime membership and sure. you know, for like my day-to-day stuff, it's, it's great. It's, it's, you know, stuff shows up day or, you know, sometimes the same day now and they, you know, you know, usually within the next couple of days, but to your point, it, for you and your brand and the company and the product and delivering on the experience is such an important part of it. And I do think that we are in this new world of what we refer to internally as the loyalty economy, which is you're going to, you're going to win because people fall in love with you. 
right? I mean, that's the, that's the big idea. And kinda, you're not going to be able to out Amazon, Amazon, <laughs> but, but you can do something that's unique and special and different that people create that emotional connection. And I think that that's what happens. I mean, you know, I have a standing desk, right? So I, I have a pair of Adams that are just the best. Like I just, I, you know, I'm on my feet eight hours a day and like, it's been a game changer and that's great to hear. Yeah. And like, and I just think that when you create that connection with people, you, you want to, you want to hold it tight, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think you do a great job of that, which, which Thank you. now that ties to your team. So, you know, when it's, you know, you and a couple of people in a room getting started, it's really easy to ensure that, you know, you have the right culture, the right engagement. How, as you have grown and scaled the team, how do you, how do you, how do you hire your, your gurus how do you enable them? How do you ensure that they're super engaged? Like, how do you effectively, how do you build that guru culture with your team as you grow and scale? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. We've changed our approach, frankly. The pandemic changed our approach pretty dramatically. We had a very typical kind of contact agent culture when I arrived here in October, 2019, everyone was jammed in a room on smaller desks nearby, <laughs> high energy, you know, lots of noise, you know, people turning and asking each other questions. And as the pandemic hit, we sent everybody home. And ironically, as a leader, I was overseeing that team and we had a, a call center or a, a, or a, contact, a CX manager at the time, later I promoted him to director who reported into me and he was very worried about it as well. And my big concern was like, of all the people you know, in the business that may or may not be equipped from like a space perspective to be able to do their job. You know, I jumped into a spare bedroom when we went remote, <laughs> you know, I just took over right. the guest bedroom right. and kicked and moved the bed off to the side. And suddenly that was my office. You know, it's like, I've got a door I can close. Even if the dogs are barking, there's a little bit of privacy. I can kind and of everyone got focused. used to the dogs barking too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the world moved on. And the gurus in particular were one that I was like, oh my gosh, you know, not some of these kids are still living at home with their parents or they're in a little bit more of a communal setting. They're sitting at a kitchen table. We had one woman that, you know, sat in her bed half the day, kind wow. of with her back up against the bed. And she loved it. She thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And so mm -hmm. we surveyed them as we went through this timeline and, and they more than anyone. And so actually when we, we came back into the office, they're still fully remote. And so we've, we've said, you know what, if you all love that approach and it's working for you and it seems to be working for us and for the customer, then who, who are we to make right. a change and mandate a change? It just didn't seem right. And so, so that's definitely so get, so, changed a good bit of it. And so given that, you know, how do you hire and, yeah. and what are the things you look for? And then once you hire people, yeah. what do you do to... I use the word enablement. I was going to say indoctrinate. That seems a little, you know, maybe a little cultish, yeah. but you know, but like, how do you get people to understand? Like, how do you train them? Like, and how do you make sure you've hired the right people? Yeah. So we have a dedicated trainer on staff who's developed a training program and a methodology. And our new director of CX comes from a training background. So he's incredible. So he's coming and bringing this level of strategic thinking into that team that is just really eye-opening for us. And so we have a dedicated trainer, a dedicated QA person, and we have two kind of team leads that are responsible for sort of training and onboarding. And the training program is exceptionally well run. 
Uh, most of the hiring is done through word of mouth and it's internal to the team. Um, we've actually gotten to the point where we're like, okay, this is getting a little bit monoculture. Maybe we should kind of force ourselves to go find a, one or two other folks from outside the organization just because that, you know, you're, there's always a concern. New, that, new ideas. Know, our, different, different yeah, ideas. new ideas, yeah. new thoughts, yeah. new perspectives, new ways of doing things, new, different people that have been trained by other organizations. There's, there's no reason for us to think we've got this wrangled every single time. So yeah. um, it's been a really incredible and, you know, very overall that team had experienced quite low turnover for quite some time. And so yeah. it's been really good though. The, the team has adapted to this new environment very well. We, we empower them. I, I like the word empower. We empower them to do what's right for the customer within mm -hmm. reason. There's some guardrails, um, but by and large, they are fully empowered to just take care of customers. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm one of those that believes the customer's right most of the time, not always. And <laughs> we've got to kind of, uh, and, and we've got to learn from our mistakes when we're not communicating something clearly. Right. You know, to this day, we're still debating on, uh, this is, uh, I think, one of the things that I'll never really fully be solved, but what should our return policy be? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a 45 day return policy. They need to be returned in kind of like new condition. But we also encourage people to wear them in, around the house for a couple of weeks to right. try to break them in. Well, if you've worn them around the house for a couple of weeks, they're going to look used. Like, right. so where in that, where does that line, where do we draw the line about tr treating customers right versus the operational risk of having an unlimited, go ahead and break them in, running them for a bit. And, yeah. and then if, you don't, if you're not hundred percent satisfied inside of X days, go ahead and ship them back. So we're, right. it's, it's a real challenge, honestly. That's one of those ones that's like, I surveyed the marketplace, people are all over the board. And Everyone from Nike to Adidas to Allbirds, everyone's got a different return policy. Yeah. And it's just really interesting. You know? I, think, I think the thing that you said, which is the right approach though, is about empowerment. Yeah. I don't know if you know Danny Cox. Danny leads um, customer experience at Breeze Airways and he's in Salt Lake. He shared with me a story of how, what, you know, like when you're traveling, like you talk about issues that happen, like issues happen, sure. right? Yeah. And, you know, like the old way they used to do it, like, you know, your flight's been canceled. There's no more flights tonight. We're going to book you in some, you know, random hotel around the, ho you know, around the airport somewhere. And what they did was they basically changed it and just said to customers, they said, hey, go book wherever you want. Because let's say, you know, you're, you know, a member here or a member there. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, snap, literally text us a picture of your receipt and we're going to give you a credit for it. That's amazing. Right. And like, yeah. like people are like, oh my God, that's crazy. People are going to stay at the Four Seasons. And he's like, well, you give them some guide rails. But like, turns out yeah. that the customer's happier. It actually makes it more efficient because you you have now everyone who was on the plane just booking a hotel. Right. And of course, if they want help, like they will help you find a hotel. Like if you ask, they sure. will, of course they will do it. But like, you know, if you're a traveler, probably 80% of the people are like, I'd rather just book my own hotel and just send your, yep. that's about empowerment. You know, it's about just, you just got to do the right thing for customers and make it really easy. And, and I, and I, and I just think that, you know, that, 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 that mindset of that culture is really, it's just so key to delivering great service. Yeah. One of the things you did recently was sabbaticals, you know, and you talk about these, you know, helping people with life goals. And I think you used the phrase once, uh, cultural touchstone moments. What, what is that? What is it? You know, what was the thinking behind that? What's what's happened? And yeah, so we want to create a culture here. at. I think we're one of the best kept secrets in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is an incredibly innovative and entrepreneurial place. It's filled with amazing companies. There's probably, well, I'm, 
I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say it. There's probably more unicorns per capita in, <laughs> in Salt Lake city than anywhere other than maybe Silicon Valley there. And, and we're primarily known for big B2B SaaS companies, companies mm-hmm. like Podium and Weave and Adobe and Qualtrics and you know, the like. There's so many incredible companies that are doing really great work over there. Divi. And we're this little bitty, you know, fast growing entrepreneurial e-commerce business. And I want us to be known as an employer of choice in Salt Lake Valley. I want to be able to take my pick. I want when we post a job, I want everyone who's highly qualified to be begging to come to work for us. And that happens when you have a great track record of success and growth and you have a great track record of hiring highly capable, skilled talent that puts that word out and becomes a magnet for other talent. And then it also happens when you create benefits and other things that I think get talked about and are highly valued. And so we explored this idea of a sabbatical and, and ultimately made the decision to do it. And we did it by tying the whole program into our mission as a company. Our mission is we exist to help our customers pursue their life's passion, potential, and purpose. When you have foot pain, you can do none of those things. And so by removing that foot pain and allowing people to kind of get back to normal, we think we're turbocharging their ability to, 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 to focus on those larger life goals. And so when we rolled out the sabbatical program, we did the same thing, but it's, it's for our employees instead of for our customers. And so rather than making someone wait 10 years to earn a sabbatical with us, we do it at three, six, and nine years. So every three years, wow. we may have to get to 12 and 15, but at three years of employment with us, you get a week off of work and a thousand dollars. And we want you to take that time and that money to go check off one of your life goals. So when we hire you, Joseph, when you come work for us, we're going to ask uh-huh. you, identify your kind of big bucket list items, right? Help us uh, capture those things and put them on and we, we hang them on the wall. And the whole idea of the program is to use that time and that money uh, to go and do something that you wouldn't have otherwise had the resources or the time to go and do. And then when you come back, we want to hear you tell everyone all about it. And so we had one of our team members who immigrated here when he was three or four from Mexico, just use his sabbatical to go back for the first time in 25 years and meet with his ancestors, his great aunts and grandparents in Mexico. It's incredible. And he's got these incredible pictures and it was this life changing moment for him. And, you know, we as an employer played a small role in making that happen. And he's a highly valued team employee. And, that, that, that's a cultural touchstone moment. And when he comes back and we're going to have our all hands yeah. here in a couple of weeks, we're going to ask him to stand up and talk about it in front of the <laughs> whole company. So it's, it's a great, it has the potential to be in a really incredible program. And by getting people to state, like, these are the things that are important to me yeah. that are these kind of bucket list items. And we, we literally call it the, it's the life goals program. It's the hashtag life goals. I'm excited to see where it takes us as a company and Pretty been really cool. effective so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Cause you know, you're supporting people and cause I do think that, um, you know, people talk a lot about work life balance and I actually yeah. think that that concept is not right. There's a professor from uh, Penn and Wharton that I've known for years and he, he sort of has a different approach, which I really like, which is that you really want to optimize both of those things. Because balance, the problem with balance, you know, when you think about a scale, you know, like the justice, you know, like you think about the scales mm-hmm. of justice, like one has to go up for the other to go down. 
right? Yeah. And I think that that idea of actually how you optimize and sort of try to integrate and you're supporting people in their personal lives to do things like that, they bring that yeah. value back to their work. And yeah. I just think that's an awesome, awesome idea. Yeah. A guy I used to work with used to say, there's no such thing as work-life balance. There's only work-life integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like how you integrate those two things together is everything. And yeah. how it's, I love it. It's, it makes a ton of sense. I've always agreed with him and I agree with you as well. It makes a ton of sense to me. So, you know, the name of the podcast is radically personal. And so you may have, you may have heard this, but I, I, I like to ask everybody uh, to share. So if you can share something radically personal about you that most people don't know that, you know, maybe had an impact on who you are today and, and, and how you think of the world and your work, what, what would that be? Um, I, I know I don't, well, maybe some people, I guess, know it, but um, those that are closest, but I was a competitive um, tennis player all through high school and college. So traveled quite a bit and I'm just a very competitive guy. Um, Uh it's not that I, I like the, the competitive nature of it. It's for me, it's less about winning and and more about not losing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's so what been, was it I about? Think, yeah, what was it about tennis then? Like, was it that it just instilled in you this competitive instinct, or was it an outlet? I for think it? I've always been. Um, com- I mean, I I remember. Uh, let's go back a little further. Eight years old. I remember my mom. <laughs> we're driving going. We're going to keep going back. <laughs> the summer, the summer I was eight years old. I was in little league baseball. I was taking golf lessons. I was taking tennis lessons. I was on a swim team. I was oh in a goodness. bowling league on Saturday mornings. My poor mother was my chauffeur <laughs> and I was always athletic and always competitive. And I just did everything. If, I, if it could be done, I was interested in doing it. And along the way, kind of focused down on tennis to the detriment of some, like I gave up, I didn't play baseball in high school because mm-hmm. it was competing with tennis as a season. Right. Right. And I was the best player in the, in the school and one of the best players in, you know, in the county, in the state uh, of Illinois back then, way back in the day. I don't, I don't play tennis anymore today. Now that's all kind of focused on golf. And <laughs> I think that uh, form that, that level of competition in those summers with my friends and family, um, I think it just, it formed a lot of who I am in the business world today. That's great. I thought you were going to talk about something else. Oh, but you put this on Twitter, so it's not quite that. Oh, that's that. not yeah. <laughs> Your tattoo. I thought you were going to talk yeah. about your, your motorcycle gear shift tattoo around your ankle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. now, everyone's got to go search your Twitter and find the picture of your ankle, which I thought that's was true. That's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> my first tattoo two weeks ago or three weeks ago with my 17-year-old. It's uh, For those that like to ride motorcycles, everyone knows that for the most part, it's you know, the gear bridge, uh, the gear pattern is one down and four or five up, right? And so fun little tattoo that I saw. I was like, oh, I want to get that. So that's my first tattoo. I love it. That's great. Well, in closing, what's next for you and Kuru and where you want to go? Well, right now we are in the process of replatforming the whole business away from Magento into Shopify. So we just kicked off a huge project. So it's going to be five or six months. So our whole tech stack is changing. Every, every Almost every single tech tool that we use is changing with the exception of Gladly. The only thing that was completely off limits as we made that decision was that we have to continue working with Gladly. So thanks for all that you have done for us. And Thank you. we're really, I'm super happy to be a customer and I'm looking forward to continuing to work with y'all and, and continue to evolve our program as we go into the new world with Shopify instead of Magento. Yeah. Well, Shopify is a, it's a great platform. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're excited to continue to partner with you and continue on the journey and 
can't thank you and the team enough for all the partnership and feedback and look forward to many, 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 many more years together. And uh, thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Sean, thanks again for your support and being a great partner to Gladly. We're really proud to help you and the entire team continue providing the radically personal customer experiences you're known for. I'm Joseph Ancinelli, CEO of Gladly. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or visit us at radicallypersonal.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Radically Personal.